Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Colonel J.P. Clark, an Army War College professor in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations, and the Editor-in-Chief for War Room. As always, we're delighted to have you with us, but particularly so for this special conversation with one of the Army's senior leaders who is literally at the forward edge of implementing the 2022 National Defense Strategy. General Charlie Flynn has been the commanding general of U.S. Army Pacific for nearly two years. Prior to that, he was the Army's G-357, responsible for everything from daily execution of a number of critical missions to plotting out the Army's long-term future, among many other responsibilities. General Flynn was commissioned as an infantryman after graduating from the University of Rhode Island and has served in pretty much every role that you would expect from platoon leader to division commander. General Flynn has also served in various roles in TRADOC, FORCECOM, and the Joint Staff. Though he has spent his share of time in Iraq and Afghanistan, General Flynn has numerous tours in both command and staff positions in the Pacific region, no doubt critical preparation for his current role. General Flynn, thanks for coming all the way to Carlisle and joining us in the war room. Thanks, JP. I appreciate you having me here today. Yes, sir. So uh, everyone here at the, the War College, students and faculty, we're always trying to develop a better framework for understanding the world, which is, which is pretty chaotic at, at any given time these days. And so you have developed uh, a construct, the four C's, that you were able to use both uh, in, as the Army's G357 and then now as, as the CG of USERPAC, which obviously are very distinct roles but both require a real high level of, of strategic thought. The fact that that is, was useful to you and you continue to use it probably indicates that our, our, our listeners and our, our students and faculty would be very interested in it. So before we get into all that USERPAC is doing, could you kind of run us through the four C's and how it helps you think about the world? Well, thanks. I, I do think it was a useful construct. It remains a useful construct. I think I'd put it in, in, uh, in this perspective. As we were you know, creating uh, and making progress with multi-domain operations and the tenets that were part of the future operating concept. I think the framework of uh, competition, crisis, conflict, and campaigning was a good uh, framework for us to apply our future operating concept of multi-domain operations to it. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of discussion about crisis and conflict because, you know, you see a lot of that around the world and to a lesser degree what's happening with competition. But it is clearly a competitive global environment out there um, across the dime spectrum. I guess what I would point out, though, is campaigning was something that was in that 4C construct, but it's also one of the three pillars in the national defense strategy the other two being uh, integrated deterrence, which Secretary of Defense Austin uh, introduced actually at the Indo-PACOM change of command between Admiral Davison and Admiral Aquilino. And then the other pillar being uh, this pillar of enduring advantage. Uh, and so I think that that construct is where I'd like to sort of take the conversation today, JP, because I do think that the Army's role in the Pacific 
is one that is invaluable to the joint force in campaigning. And we can talk more, uh, I guess, uh, across this uh, hour on what we're doing in campaign, because I do think it has a lot to do with creating conditions for enduring advantage, creating conditions in order to create integrated deterrence. And the way we do that is by campaigning as uh, army forces in support of the joint force working with our allies and partners across the vastness of the Pacific, Indo-Pacific region. Yes, sir. No, and, and, and thank you for that. And it kind of brings up something that we had discussed just here very recently in terms of the resident course, where we have a, a full lesson on theater armies. And the way that you kind of put that is obviously you are responsible to the Indo-PACOM commander, but you also have responsibilities to the Department of the Army. And, and so you're kind of at the nexus here. And you, you mentioned, you know, army forces in campaigning. Do you find yourself in terms of, or, or maybe if you could take us through, you know, a particularly good example, because it seems like having those two, two roles is somehow potentially a advantage to you in terms of your authorities in that you are both building and employing readiness all at the same time. And so what, what where do you think is, is one of the best examples of how we're doing well, that? Well, let me, let me talk about the role, first of all. Uh, I And I've, I remind people of this often. In fact, one of the courses I just spoke to uh, was reminding uh, that we are a theater army. By our doctrine, we're a theater army. And actually, it's one of four roles that we perform. And I have told other senior leaders that we need to stop referring to our theater armies as only ASCCs. That is the Army Service Component Command, which is the Title X part of Man, Train, Equip, Organize, and Make Ready Army Forces in support of the Joint Force Commander. But there's another three roles that we play, and they're all warfighting roles. That is, be CJTF capable, be theater uh, joint force land component command capable and be a CJ flick as well. So the combined and coalition part of it is also a really important role. So those four roles I'm playing every day, only one of them is on the man, train, equip, organize. The other three are my warfighting hat. And that is the point that you're making, which is the, the nexus of the army and the joint force it comes together at the theater army level. So to the point, uh, the part of your question about authorities, the very authorities that we get as the land component to operate in the theater, everything from 164 authorities that happen for exercises or triple three or three, two, those all come from the combatant commander. And so the combatant commander is delegating those authorities and providing those authorities for us to operate in the region against the threats, against the adversaries, but maybe more importantly, with our allies and partners in the region so that we build uh, enduring advantage, that we build integrated deterrence, that we create campaigning quality uh, through combat credible forces forward in the region. And we do that on behalf of the joint force. When people talk about you know, theater armies set the theater. Well, we, we have to finish the sentence and say we set the theater for the joint force because that's what those foundational capabilities at scale, that's what the army provides to the joint force. And I think that that's an important 
element and often an overlooked or underappreciated element of what the theater army represents for the army, but more importantly for the joint force. Yes, sir. And as as you had referenced before, this is all in support of the 2022 National Defense Strategy, which uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with it, that, you know, China is the pacing challenge. Uh, Certainly not the only uh, element, but kind of puts you at the the forefront where, you know, maybe the first amongst equals in terms of our of our theater armies. You know, the the idea of campaigning and trying to either, you know, Prepare for conflict is, is one part, but also to make sure that we aren't we aren't losing or you know that our competitors aren't winning without fighting. What does that look like on a daily basis in in USERPAC? Uh, how you know, and do you have what you need in order to be able to do those sorts of things? Um, so day to day, what we're trying to do um, is to sort of create four uh, bins of activities through, you know, organizing the force, through war fighting um, in the region, uh, to war gaming so we can test and evaluate and assess our plans, um, and then campaigning, the things that we do day-to-day in support of the national defense strategy. So I think there's really three uh, large, I'll say, sort of special initiatives that we have underway uh, in U.S. Army Pacific in support of campaigning, in support of the joint force, and really in support of those three pillars uh, within the uh, national defense strategy. So the first thing that we're doing is the Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center. So this is, this is training at the Regional Combat Training Center to generate readiness, to generate interoperability, and to generate our forces. And then what we're doing in the second part of uh, our initiatives is we're then, after gen- generating that readiness in the Hawaii or Alaskan uh, campuses of our uh, training center, we're projecting that combat credible force into the region on Operation Pathways. And Operation Pathways is our operational approach to campaign. And it is campaigning forward in the region, and it really is the sum of four parts that make up integrated deterrence. So when I talk to my subordinate commanders, I talk to them that integrated deterrence means the sum of these four parts, capabilities, posture, messaging, and will. And so that capability is bringing those capabilities that the Army has at scale, foundational capabilities through all the warfighting functions, and we put combat credible forces west of the international dateline, on the Asian continent, on the first uh, island chain, on the second island chain throughout Southeast Asia. We posture those forces, the second part of this, this equation, we posture those forces in support of our allies and partners. And what we're doing by, uh, by bringing capabilities and posture forward is we're really doing three things. We're increasing our interoperability with our allies and partners and increasing their confidence. The second thing that we're doing is we're increasing our joint readiness, training, and operating as a joint force. And then the third thing we're doing is we're denying the PRC key terrain, both human and physical. The third part of this is actually messaging or signaling what we're doing in the region, right? Demonstrating in the information space 
the value of those land forces and the value of the joint force and the value of the positional advantage that we gain by operating in and amongst all these nations with our allies and partners and the network of allies and partners that is the greatest counterweight to the PRC. And then the last thing is will. And will, in my view, is best demonstrated by putting you know, our sons and daughters on the ground, working with our allies and partners in a sovereign country at their invitation and with their consent to do all of the things that I just described. And so, in my view, that is the benefit of what uh, the theater army and the land power network provides the joint force day to day. And that is effectively uh, the second part of what we're doing, the third part of what we're doing. So the first part being JPMRC, the second part being Operation Pathways, the third part being what we're trying to create is joint interior lines. We're trying to get combat credible forces forward again, on the first island chain, on the Asian continent, so that we can affect the time and space of our adversaries. But maybe more importantly is to extend our indications and warnings time and to expand the battle space, if you will, or at least expand the challenges associated with these adversaries, that being the PRC, that being North Korea, that being Russia, and any other emerging threats that appear out there uh, day to day. And so those are really the three, I'll say, special initiatives that we have underway in the Pacific, a regional combat training center, by the way, of Joint, uh, Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center, Operation Pathways, which is our operational approach and our, our campaigning uh, in, the, in the theater. And then the third thing is Joint Interior Lines to really set the theater for the joint force so we can deny and deter uh, this war from occurring. Yes, uh, sir. And, and, and I'd like to go back to the war gaming in a second, uh, because you hit on some, something obviously we're doing right now as we're in our joint overmatch week here at the, uh, the War College. But before that, uh, you, as you had mentioned, Will, what has been the change in the tenor? Because I think that, you know, obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine and, and Ukraine's resistance to this point has really brought out the point of the importance of will as an intangible factor. Has it changed the mood within the Pacific theater as all, at all as, as, as various allies and partners have been watching this play out? Well, in my view, it has. Um, I think that, you know, the... Um, you know, some of the things that the PRC has done from, you know, the post-Speaker uh, Pelosi visit um, and those irresponsible, you know, behaviors, um, the recent incident with the balloon. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, the region uh, and a number of the uh, uh, allies and partners in the region recognize uh, that irresponsible behavior. Um, I guess what I'd say, JP, is that what I see more of, and I think I, and I'll, I'll cite a few examples here uh, to highlight it, but what I've seen more of in my time uh, coming back into the region since 21 is there is a sense of unity and collective commitment by a number of countries in the region um, that 
that see some of that irresponsible behavior and some of the coercive, what I've referred to before publicly as an insidious and incremental approach uh, by the PRC. I think they see that and, uh, and they are uh, more willing to uh, operate in different ways with us and taking actions in support of that. So let me give you a couple of examples. I think uh, that there's, a, there's been a dramatic change uh, in the Republic of Korea. Uh, I think the administration changed there and what they're doing by way of uh, uh, increasing the scale, scope, complexity of the training uh, on, the, uh, on the peninsula has been profound. Um, I'll jump over to Japan very quickly. Their uh, national security documents, their you know, uh, doubling of their uh, defense um, uh, budget, their investment in counter-strike, their uh, requirement to now build a joint headquarters, and just uh, the way the at least the uh, ground self-defense forces are training, rehearsing, exercising with uh, the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps. I, I would say the whole joint force has been really extraordinary. I'll jump down to the Philippines. Um, you know, I think that uh, the new administration there, some of the new strategic guidance that they've gotten, I think the, um, you know, the, the work that is going on between the U.S. and the Philippines on uh, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement sites across the Philippines. Uh, this year, we're about to have the largest Balakatan and Salakanib exercises in the Philippines. Then I'll jump down to Australia. Um, Again, I think the, uh, the, the work that is going on between the U.S. and Australia is really significant, um, at least on the Army side. You know, they, they are, uh, really have been making decisions to invest in the uh, combined arms, ground, and air maneuver of, uh, of the U.S. Army to the point where uh, I think it was uh, General uh, Angus Campbell, the Chad down there over a year ago when we were talking, he said, you know, Charlie, this is, we're really talking beyond um, interoperability. We're talking about interchangeability. And so I think that that kind of sentiment, at least in those four countries, has been a change that I've seen in the region. I'll go to a couple others. Uh, Indonesia, uh, last year we did, you know, we had an army-to-army -army exercise for about 17 years, Garuda Shield. It turned into a 14-country multilateral, multinational exercise in Indonesia. And again, we're, we're uh, on a path this year to do something exactly the same with about 14 or 15 countries. So going into uh, this year in 23, um, I think the, it's really important for us to pay attention to two things. The first thing is the posture enhancements that we can make from command and control to sustainment to protection of ours and our ally and partner forces um, and to the collection work that we can do out there working with our allies and partners. And then the other thing is more and more commitments of unity and uh, collective commitment visible in multinational exercises. For example, this year in Yamasakura, we, which used to just be a U.S. Army and, and U.S. Um, Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force exercise, this year it will have an Australian division, 
It will likely have a Philippine division. It'll have a U.S. Army division, a Marine Corps division, and it'll also exercise the ground component commander, the GCC headquarters of the Japanese Ground Self-Defense Forces, and all four of their territorial armies, which is a kind of a division equivalent. So again, I could talk probably for 30 minutes on just the indications that I see on that kind of unity and collective commitment coming together, and I think that's uh, been invaluable. Yes, sir. Well, and what that kind of brings to mind, some of those examples, particularly you know, General uh, Campbell's comment, but, but all, all the examples that you were laying out, and that these are real difficult exercises aimed at building interoperability, not simply, you know, a photo op with a lot of different, you know, uniforms at the end. That's but right. some of the, the naysayers of the national defense strategy, as they talk about integrated deterrence and inclusion of allies and partners, sometimes they say, well, just because you say allies and partners, that doesn't, that doesn't make anything happen on the ground. I think that some of the examples you're giving is that that is actually the hard yards that is required in order to make allies and partners part of integrated yeah, deterrence. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I know it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's kind of this, well, you know, we've been doing it a long time. What do you have to show for it? And I, I think that, you know, 14 nations coming together in Garuda Shield last year. Oh, by the way, you know, this is the day after China did what they did with the quasi-blockade and the you know, the missile strikes in and around Taiwan. So, I mean, you know, I was down in Australia the next day because I moved from Indonesia, Australia, and, and, you know, on the TV in the morning news, the first uh, 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 story was on what the Chinese had done around Taiwan in response to Speaker Pelosi. The next one was actually because the Australians were participating in Garuda Shield, the next story was 14 nations coming together in, in, uh, in Indonesia, and I was part of the press conference where we were talking about unity and collective commitment. So, you know, there just shows you the bookends of, you know, what was happening in early August of this past year. 14 nations coming together, and what do we illustrate? Unity and collective commitment and responsible behavior. The Chinese, you know, response to Speaker Pelosi in, uh, in Taiwan— irresponsible behavior. Yes, sir. Now, returning real briefly to the war gaming, I know that, uh, you know, you've been kind of at the forefront of the Unified Pacific and Pacific Winds. There's been a lot that's been going on uh, as, as I led in. And for some of our listeners who are not familiar with the War College curriculum, uh, our the capstone to our military strategy and campaigning course is a exercise called Joint Overmatch, which takes place in the Pacific. We're just on our first day, but already the seminars and my seminar happens to be plain uh, blue. Uh, they're seeing how far in advance you really have to think through things because of the tyranny of distance and the difficulty of, of supply and thinking in terms of both time and space. Uh, and so I think that it, this is a great example of what war games, you know, buy. But that's for a war college seminar. What do you, as the commanding general of USERPAC, get out of war games, and, and how does it help you kind of think through, of, of all the things we could do, hey, where, where do I put my next dollar, where do I put my next, you know, bit of force elements? Well, first of all, thanks for this question, because I think it's a really important one. Um, I'd like to back up a little bit and say, sort of, you know, describe, if you will, how we got to where we got to. So, uh I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a unicorn in the Army because of my time in the Pacific. Um, I've been to four uh, global war games. Global is the, uh, 
is the U.S. is kind of the, the, the CNO sponsored uh, pack fleet, U.S. pack fleet led war game for the Navy. Uh, as you know, or some of our listeners know, the uh, Army had for many years they had the Unified series, which went a little dormant during the uh, COVID years. So when we came out of COVID, I was I was in the Pacific. Uh, I went to Global, uh, the Global War Game in Newport in November of 21, and it dawned on me that you know we needed to partner with the U.S. Navy and the Global War Game, and so this was where Unified Pacific became our partner wargaming effort with uh, the Navy's Global. The idea here is with Pacific Fleet's Global and uh, U.S. Army Pacific's Unified Pacific War Game series, we've actually created conditions where we have a joint campaign of learning between you know, the two forces that are going to play an enormously important role, not that, you know, the JFAC and JIFSOC and, and other capabilities will not, but it's just the point that we now have a campaign of learning using two sizable war games, Global being the Navies and Unified Pacific being the Army. And I went to Admiral Paparo, the PAC fleet commander, and I said, Look, when we finish Global in Newport, can you give me those ending conditions and I'll start our war game there? Well, that's what we did. And last year's war game, we identified and validated um, seven gaps. In those gaps, of course, they inform Army force design and force development. Um, and obviously, those seven gaps required further study, of which we're doing this year. I'll just kind of rattle off the seven uh, gaps. So we, the first one was we needed to counter uh, the PLA's mass and interior lines. The second one was joint in interoperability and converging effects. We needed to figure out a, a better way to do that. Uh, intelligence support, the joint targeting was the third one. Joint theater logistics and sustainment. Uh, the fifth one was joint protection and survivability. The sixth one was uh, strengthening and leveraging allies and partners in the network uh, that we have there in the region. The last one is posturing for integrated deterrence and joint campaigning. I think what's important is that we took from those seven last year and we're doing two, I'll call them micro or mini war games. The first one we just did in the first week of January on uh, Indications and warnings and intel support to joint targeting. And the next one we're going to do in the first week of April is on uh, joint contested logistics. Again, those were four insights that we gained of the seven. I'm sorry, those two insights of the seven that we're wargaming on this year. The idea, uh, JP, is to then take the results of those two war games on intelligence and logistics put a summary uh, of insights and lessons from the war games together in June, July, hand that off to the Navy, and then the Navy takes that into its global war game this fall. And so the point being, we now have this sort of continual wargaming effort. And why is this important? It's important because what we're doing in these war games ought to test and validate our operational design and our plans. And where we see 
disconnects, where we see gaps, where we see uh, uh, capabilities that we need to develop out, that should inform back to each of the services what we need to do. I mean, that's the whole point to doing these war games is to test, validate, design, force structure, programming, budgeting, plans, and you name it. And so I'm really excited about it because now we actually have a annual uh, campaign of learning that's going on between the two services led by two component commands in support of a combatant command supported by, you know, the Navy and the, and the Army. And, of course, the Joint Force comes to these things because it's our, it's our annual, uh, you know, 100 yards that we gotta, that we got to go and, and score every year. So it's, it's a good thing. Yes, yeah, sir. Well, and, uh, the, uh, that was a heck of a, of a list of seven gaps, um, and I, I can see why you would want to take a few at the time, and, and logistics and intelligence probably makes a, makes a lot of sense, uh, at least what we're, what we're discovering here at the, uh, within Joint Overmatch for, for good places to start. And the thing this kind of goes back to the earlier part of the conversation where as a, you know, as a theater army, as an ASCC, having those Title X responsibilities, it's not just, you know, the joint force, you know, the, the combatant commands asking for stuff. You have a, a foot in both camps and are able to, to advocate with the army to, to which, build. Which, which oh. you bring up a great point, JP. So this is not just for plans and force structure. These war games also, we learn and discover and then can take those insights and put them into our day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year campaigning, right? So it's not just, you know, for the long-term fix of plans and force structure. The insights that we're taking ought to drive changes in what we're doing while we campaign. uh, Let me give you one example. On contested logistics this year, we saw that insight from the game last year. So this year, we're actually doing two J-lots. We're putting in a, uh, a JLC, a Joint Logistics Commander for Exercise Talisman Sabre. And there's a whole host of other things we're doing with uh, Army pre-position stocks in Japan and Korea, application of our watercraft, uh, things that we're working with, Transcom and DLA and Joint Munitions Command and Army uh, Security Cooperation Assistance Command, Contracting Command. The point I'm making is the war game is actually helping us learn day-to-day what we have to modify or adjust in the region so that we can actually improve our campaigning, which then adds to those three pillars of the national defense campaigning, integrated deterrence, and enduring advantage. Yes, sir. And the yeah, campaign of learning isn't a fancy way of saying a series of war games. As you said, there's on the ground or, or maybe in some cases on the water experimentation. That's right. At the same time, you're doing the war games. Sir, uh, kind of going back to the pre-World War II, because what you were describing reminds me a lot of, you know, what we were doing back in the, when the Army War College was in D.C. and, you know, Newport has always been Newport and how much the war games, you know, there's the very you know famous quote, uh, I believe it's from either Admirals Nimitz or Spruance about, yeah, there was nothing that surprised us during the war because we played it all out. But if you look over time. Except for the kamikazes, I think. Yeah, I think yeah, the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Was, uh, you know, the, 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 they didn't start off at that level of understanding. And so from 1906, when you had the very first war plan, uh, orange war plans, it took a while for us to get to that level. Where, where are we 
on that whole spectrum? Are we still kind of getting some of the first principles down? Or, you know, how much learning is going on at each of these games? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a ton of learning going on. Um, I guess what, uh, you know, as a former alumni of Joint Forces Command, um, and I spent, you know, two years as a trainer on the deployable training team, going around to all of the combatant commands and basically certifying all the JTFs uh, across each of the COCOMs. Of course, this is, you know, the late 90s um, uh, when, you know, we were doing this. Um, but we no longer have that. And so what, where we are, and then you add in, you know, 20 years of counterinsurgency in the Middle East. And so we are where we are. And I think one thing that's really vital to what we're doing in the Indo-Pacific is, and part of this wargaming is, is part of that, is, you know, this gives us a way to not only improve our, uh, our planning and force development, it also gives us the ability to look at a scenario and to really surface those very hard problems that we're going to be confronted with. And I think what's important in this work is that we have to be very thoughtful and create an environment where we are thinking uh, deeply about how we intend to operate, how we intend to fight, how we intend to, at the operational level of war, win and create conditions where we can first prevent and deter this war from happening. I mean, I, as I sit here today, there's a terrible outcome in Europe, and the carnage and wreckage, you know, at one year into it um, is unfortunate. And you could probably use a stronger word to describe it, but it's, uh, it's terrible. And I think that by us wargaming and thinking and planning and preparing and then taking the insights from those war games and going out and rehearsing and experimenting and learning and succeeding and failing so that we grow from it as a joint force, my, my view on that is the sum total of that would be a way for us to stop this war from happening and prevent it and deter it because we're going to need to show strength. And I think we're going to show strength by learning and growing and operating as a joint force so that we can increase interoperability of our allies and partners and their confidence in us and, and them and in, in them with us. Um, we need to increase our joint readiness. And this wargaming gives us the ability to do things with the joint force that I think allow us to increase our proficiency and skill level as a joint force. And then the last thing is, as I mentioned earlier, is just I think, you know, that the fight uh, in the Indo-Pacific um, is about terrain. It's about decisive terrain. And it's about terrain that controls uh, many of the choke points across that region. And we have to find creative ways to deny 
the PRC that key terrain. That key terrain, and it's not just the physical terrain, it's the human terrain that is living on that physical terrain and, uh, and is really uh, what these nations and their militaries are wanting to do for their people and for their government, which is to protect their national sovereignty. Yes, sir. No, that's a, and that is a, a good place to uh, to kind of draw this uh, conversation to a close. And, and as you said, and, and, you know, the, the recent war game conducted by CSIS shows that even if you win, it's far preferable to actually have deterred the war than to, than to, to actually uh, have gone through because there would be a lot of destruction uh, even in a, in a victory. Uh, but, you know, last word to you, sir, anything you want to offer our listeners, particularly if they're interested, they want to get out to the Pacific, you know, how, how should they prepare themselves to play a role in this? Well, I think, um, I, I, in my view, I think that um, continuing to read uh, our history, continuing to read about the challenges that, are, uh, that we're confronted with, um, in the Pacific. I mean, as I sit here, I, you know, I'm not an economist, I'm not a diplomat, uh, you know, I'm not a specialist on information, but what I have been doing for almost four decades is um, learning, understanding, educating, um, and executing you know, the military um, role of our profession. And when I look at the uh, rise, the military modernization, reorganization, and the training and the rehearsing uh, that the PRC is doing, um, my command, my obligation— my responsibility uh, on behalf of the, uh, the Army and the Indo-Pacific Command commander who works for the Secretary of Defense and the President is to counter what that military arm has the potential to do. And we're trying to get into a position to prevent the use of that. And if we can prevent and deter the use of that, then we can stop war from happening. And I think the goal, at least everyone's goal in the region, and I, and I, I know it's ours as well, is to have no war. But in order to have no war, you have to be prepared to fight. And so we are preparing ourselves to fight and get into a position of advantage so that that fight never comes. And I think that's, you know, sort of my solemn obligation to my soldiers and my command and my commander and to the National Command Authority. And I'm going to do everything I possibly can for the time that I remain in uniform to prevent this war from happening. I think the last point I'd make, JP, is that, um, you know, we, we have to live in the future. And that's where leaders have to spend all of their time. And, um, you know, the decisions, the actions, the, the initiatives that we're putting in place right now 
are going to stay and have an effect well past my time. And so I don't feel responsible for just today. I feel responsible for the next five to ten years um, because no decision is a decision. And so what I'm trying to do is make as many decisions as I possibly can to get into a place where we can deter this from happening. And if we can deter it from happening, then, you know, everyone, everyone and every nation can feel the effects of a, a free and open Indo-Pacific. And uh, so that's what I'm working uh, every day at a feverish pace to try to, you know, make my contribution to doing that. So thanks, and I appreciate you having me here today. Yes, sir. You know, great closing thoughts, and uh, so thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a long way across, but we're glad for your, your, your thoughts and, and your insights. Uh, thanks to all our listeners for joining us. Uh, as always, please go to the website and make sure that you subscribe to our, our weekly newsletter so that you get all of our episodes. Also, please leave a review on the podcast of your choice so that others can find out about conversations like this. And uh, we look forward to welcoming you back to the War Room next time. Until then, uh, Colonel J.P. Clark, Editor-in-Chief for the War Room. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.